When people hear the term natural selection, they automatically associate it with Darwinian evolution. Darwin did claim that this was the basis for his ideas. But do creation scientists accept natural selection? Stay tuned. It's an observation of what happened in the world since man's sin corrupted God's perfect creation. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. For many Christians, the term natural selection has almost become a bad word, which is not surprising when you understand how it's equated with the concept of evolution. But as creationists, can we deny something that is observable in nature? Don't tune us out. In the next 15 minutes, we'll discuss Darwin's faulty understanding of natural selection and how it is actually powerful evidence against evolution. Dr. Gary Parker, ICR biologist and director of Creation Adventures Museum in Arcadia, Florida, reminds us that natural selection can be observed in nature. Natural selection, uh, let me emphasize this, is a real phenomenon, a process that we can and do see going on around us today. And, in fact, natural selection is really a truism. As Darwin noticed when he sailed around the world, there's lots and lots of incredible variety among living things. and There's a ceaseless struggle for life going on in what we would call our fallen world. And so if you have this struggle going on, only a few of each kind can survive, and there's variation among the members of that kind, then it follows that some kinds are more likely to survive than others. And so they will be, quote, naturally selected. Darwin saw the results of natural selection in the variety of finches found on the Galapagos Islands. How did Darwin explain them? Exactly the same way a creationist would. He said when he was sailing around South America, he noticed these finch-like birds with a variety of beak sizes. He said maybe there was a mat of vegetation that washed out to sea and landed on the Galapagos Islands. Things like that do happen. The birds with the big beaks survived where there were seeds to crush. The birds with the little beaks survived where there were insects to eat. How and where the groups survive, but it doesn't change them into something different. Dr. Kevin Anderson is director of Creation Research Society's Van Andel Creation Research Center. He points out that creationists and evolutionists would also agree that natural selection can be linked to the survival of an organism. If the population is a hunting population like a population of lions, then those lions that run a little faster can generally hunt a little better, so they eat a little better, so they're a little more likely to survive, so that makes them a little more likely that they're going to be able to reproduce as opposed to a lioness that maybe can't run quite as fast. See, So natural selection is just that process that says she's not going to be quite as likely to survive as the ones that can run a little faster. It makes them more able to survive. Unlike evolutionists, however, Creationists would say that natural selection is limited to being an observation of how creatures adapt in nature. Dr. Parker. When you press natural selection to its logical limits, you ask, well, what makes one organism fitter to survive than the other? In reality, evolutionists calculate mathematically what fitness is by waiting for the struggle for survival to occur and then counting the survivors. By definition, the group that survives in the greatest number is fittest to survive. And so it's just survival of the survivors. In other words, natural selection is not a theory. It's an observation of what happens in the world since man's sin corrupted God's perfect creation. ICR biologist Dr. Dan Criswell points out that these changes are due to environmental conditions. 
natural selection, it's not this mystical evolutionary concept that is hard to grasp. It's really pretty simple. There are factors in the environment, things such as food availability, temperature, soil composition, and so forth. Those factors affect the organisms that live in that particular environment. One very simple example of the influence of environment resulting in variation would be the hydrangea flower. When it's in acidic soil or alkaline soil, it has a different color. So in one soil type, the flowers are purple, and in the other soil type, they're pink. So that's an example of the environment affecting what the organism actually looks like. It actually chooses for a different color of hydrangea. And this ability to survive in various environments is what creationists refer to as adaptation. Dr. Anderson. True adaptation is just simply taking advantage of the genetic information, the genetic capability or potential you already have. If the dog finds itself in colder weather, it grows a thicker coat of fur. That's not because it's mutating somehow. It's just now being induced to do that. The genes are now being expressed to make a heavier coat of fur. And vice versa, if you take the dog and put it in a much warmer environment, it will shed all that hair. Again, that's not a mutation. That's not an evolution process occurring. That's the ability the dog had inherently to begin with. Darwin took this simple observation of natural selection and adaptation on the Galapagos Islands to some far-fetched conclusions. Dr. Anderson. What Darwin did is he noticed and observed that, but he then began to think, okay, that ability to survive then also makes them better. And that means that there's always going to be this push for them to become better, for them to become faster, stronger, smarter, whatever the case. And so that push all the time to be better will mean eventually that they'll become so much better they'll actually become different. And so that push, Darwin suggested, is so strong that it actually pushes things to become continually better. And in that, then that's where he envisioned the idea that literally you have transformation of animal kinds, transformation of population features, so that non-flying creatures can fly, non-walking creatures can walk, non-swimming creatures can swim, you know, that degree of transformation. Many modern-day evolutionists would agree with Darwin and hold to natural selection as the intelligent force behind the evolutionary process. They often will kind of take the same thinking that Charles Darwin took, and that is that natural selection is the driving force. Natural selection is what keeps evolution from being random. You know, the creationists all the time talk about it's a random process, and the evolutionists say, no, it's not, because natural selection it actually has direction to it. It's not a random process. But again, when they do that, they're imparting to natural selection a attribute, a characteristic it doesn't possess. Natural selection has no thought process. It doesn't say, okay, I need this, I don't need that, I want to do this, I don't want to do that. Although many evolutionists refer to natural selection almost as an intelligent or mystical force, they also believe that somehow natural selection can come up with new information to change an organism. Dr. Criswell points out the vast difference of the meaning of natural selection between evolutionists and creationists. When a creationist says natural selection... We're saying that nature is acting on the genetic variability that was created in the gene pool for that animal. In other words, the genes were already there. They're already created there. Whereas an evolutionist would say natural selection 
chooses for traits that may have mutated and evolved. And so it fixes a new trait that wasn't there before in the population. Dr. Anderson would agree and says genetics support the creationist view that the changes that occur in organisms are limited to information that is already in their genetic code. Natural selection can't make anything. It has to just work on what's already there. So if the ability to run faster is not there, natural selection can't make it there. It can't create that kind of change. If the ability to fly is not there, natural selection can't make it. It can't suddenly make a creature fly. It has to work with what's already there. So if we want to look at it from a, a genetics perspective, the capability has to already be in the gene pool. Natural selection doesn't put anything into the gene pool. It just simply selects what's already there. Dr. Criswell. A really good example of this is dog breeding, which would be artificial selection, but it illustrates what happens in natural selection at a much faster rate because man is actually selecting for particular traits. Did the dogs mutate these traits and acquire them over the past several hundred years that we've been breeding dogs? And the answer is no. That genetic potential was already in the dog kind. And so what man has done is artificially select four particular traits in each dog breed. So this is just a really good example of how it would work in nature at a slower pace. But even with man's intelligence directing trait selection, genetic change is still limited. Dr. Anderson. Now we're seeing this with racehorses, for example. Racehorse speed, for the most part, is peaked on average. They don't run any faster. So it doesn't make any difference how much selection you do they don't run any faster. And so natural selection can't go in and say, I'm going to do something to make you run faster. It can't do that. So once that limit is achieved, natural selection is done. It can't push it further than that. And in actuality, natural selection narrows the gene pool and actually works against evolution. Natural selection is actually the opposite of what evolutionists want to view it as. It's actually a calling mechanism. It calls out those creatures, those organisms, that genetic capability that isn't as good. The creature that doesn't run as fast gets called out. The creature that doesn't fly as well gets called out. So it's actually removing genetic activities or individuals from the population and with them their genetic information, their genetic material. So all natural selection really does is just calls out those that aren't doing as well. Because evolutionists realize that natural selection alone can't add any new information, they turn to mutations as the hope for the evolutionary process. However, in nature, we see again and again that mutations don't further the species, but actually leave it vulnerable to the culling or elimination aspect of natural selection. Dr. Anderson. If I'm a bird and I'm born with some kind of defect where I can't fly at all, then natural selection says I'm gone. I will probably not reproduce or anything. I will die. So you see, it will remove the worst. It will work at removing some of those that aren't as good, but that's all it can do. It doesn't really drive anything. It doesn't say, all right, let's go to the next step. Let's fly even faster. Let's run even faster. Let's run even stronger. It doesn't do that. It just says that I'm going to take out the very worst, and then those that aren't quite as bad, I'm going to make it where they're not quite as likely to survive. But that's all I can do. That's all natural selection does. And, Dr. Parker adds, because mutations are naturally selected out, organisms are protected from rapid extinction. One of the best things that natural selection does for us is prevent evolution. 
thanks to mutations, random changes in the genetic code that begin to occur after the fall, after man's sin corrupted God's perfect world, mutations began to occur. And mutations normally produce disease, diseased organisms, and birth defects. The good news is natural selection tends to eliminate the worst of the mutations. And so if there weren't this constant elimination of mutations, species would be going extinct right and left. Thus, natural selection points to the good design and great wisdom of our Creator. Dr. Anderson. Now, I believe it's something that the Creator has made part of the biological world just as part of the adaptation process so that the population will be more finely tuned. The population will have a healthier, stronger population. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.